Psalm 119 in last week's teaching, rather lengthy, we were looking at this massive journal, not all of it because we only really identified perhaps the first 16 and that was through looking at some very special terms, terms like law, commandments, testimony, precepts, the things that relate to the ordinances of God, the things that have a special meaning for those who study the word, but for those who hear the word. One of the things that we need to remember is that we have the entire counsel of God's word that has been revealed to us from what is considered the opening or origin of the word of God to its closing, its conclusion. Now, this was not for David at that time. At, at best, he had to his uh, eyes the availing and the revealing of the Pentateuch, the five books, but he, he would not have been one privileged to know what we call the full counsel of God's word. That's for this generation, this age of grace for the church. But the important thing to remember is that these terms that we discussed last week, they were understood by David, which means remarkably, God still was faithful in the revelation of himself to those who chose to hear and to follow. And David was a listener, a musician, poet. He was a very skilled warrior. He learned all of his things through the experience of walking with God. When we talk about lives that have been affected and changed, you know, it wasn't theology that brought any of us here today. Some have greater capacities and skills with regard to the handling of the word. But it's not that this is the essential part of it. It's the connection that a man or woman desires to have with God. Even apart from this, this is an anchor to us. But one of the things we marvel of marvel about God is how did I get here? What is it that prompted my pilgrimage, my journaling, and my journey? And all of us would say, God spoke to us. Some indeed had been touched by verses from the word, but honestly, it could have been through simply the translation of the ear to the mind. It could have been a heavenly vision. It could have been something that the Lord, which he said he would do, wrote upon the heart of the individual. So when we see that David is making a boast concerning the word of God, which is what this does do, it creates for us the need to understand it is concerning every manifestation of the word. The word that is whispered in our ear by the Holy Spirit, the word that is taught from a microphone, from a pulpit, the word of prophecy that comes through those who by the giftings of the Holy Spirit minister truth, light, evangelism. It comes by means of a man or woman being in a predicament and they cry out to God and God responds in faithfulness to their cry. So the value of the word, which again is one of the special titles of what we know as the Bible, I refer it to, to it more frequently as the word than I do the Bible because the Bible has become almost 
ambiguous, but the word is very specific. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And it identifies that this is the tool by which God has established faith to mature. And for us to have promises, which we also looked at, alluded to, I think, in verse 18 of last week. So taking into account right now where we are at, the benefits that we can cite, and they're not all of them, of course, with regard to the scriptures, is the liberation that it has given to us. It tells us of God's mercy and his grace. So it's a liberating book. Not a condemning book, a convicting book, but a liberating book. It's also a light. In other words, Jesus came in person as the light of Israel. The light of the world is what he declared himself to be. And so he's also chosen to bring from the scriptures enlightenment, not Eastern mysticism, but truly theological grounded enlightenment, light that is meant to enrich us and to direct us. The other thing that it's meant to do is to give us life. If we've ever had those days in which we feel like, man, death warmed over, the word of God is intended to regenerate within our soul a different mindset and actually a reworking of our heart, which can get hard by the incidences of life, the consequences. We all go through hard times. You know families that are going through hard times right now. But it's interesting because God also chooses to use those hard times if a person's willing to submit to the Lord over them a strength and a greater trust in him. It's interesting just on an analogy, and I think it's accurate, but our old cat, I think she might be 15, I don't know. Details. <laughs> 15, Gracie? Older? Okay, so at any rate, so she was comfortably living in the house, and, and I, we just saw her just pining away, turning into skin and bones. And the thing that actually sent her out for a change of her venue, which she had been comfortable with, was she began to violate the commandments in the home. Thou shalt not go potty anywhere you want. And once that violation had been graciously tended to, she was evicted. Her eviction, though, was a hardship. She looks plump. She's got fur that's sticking to her. She's not emaciated. She's hungry. <laughs> she, she, she has grown in her hardship. You may say, that's a terrible analogy. It really isn't. She was, in my opinion, I was ready to take her into the vet and simply pronounce blessings on her and send her off. But I sent her out, and as I sent her out, she grew strong in the elements. Now, she's not without means. We have a covering over her picnic table and a little tiny pet couch out there for her and a light bulb. But that's what she gets. That's all she gets. She still has to be praying about the raccoons that come in the property. You know, she really has to have a trust. But her, what I'm saying in this is that the hardship that for others may cause them to faint for those that are willing to appreciate what the Word of God says in times of hardship, the promises that he's given to us, 
God does something to us that's a strength. So that's the analogy. She was ready at one time to be put down. She was sent out. And in that hardship, she grew strong and presently is right now. I, I know it's not going to be indefinite. But the hardships that many of us have faced and are facing, we must give God credit for what he's doing in it. If our life is submitted to him, he's strengthening us. He's developing character and trust, unlike any other kind of situation that we would say we prefer. He says, I know you prefer it, but I perfect through this. You prefer that, but I perfect through this crisis, this situation, this loss. And I do so by driving you with a thirst and hunger for my word and to seek me in a time in which a cloud of darkness is over you because I'm light. And so these are some of the benefits, the stability that the word of God offers us in the time when uncertainty has hit. In closing on simply this narrative, the why, there are three things that we know. We're foreigners in a foreign land. We're being prepared for our true home in heaven. And so this is actually, though we are enamored by it and there's much to boast in it, it's an alien land to us spiritually. And therefore, on the issues which we talked about, liberation and light and life and stability, that's why we need the word. But it's because, if you didn't understand it, this isn't our home permanently. The, the, the stats tell us that. There are people that every day are passing away. So it's not our home. There's a struggle. God expects us to be victors in a struggle. But here again is the important thing. The struggle, trusting in the Lord triumphantly, makes us stronger. We don't like it, but God ultimately takes pleasure in what it does for us in our character. And thirdly, it's a means by which this word keeps us steadfast. Keeps us steadfast. In verses 1 through 8, and again we went through the specific terms last week, it can be qualified as the undivided heart. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You've commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed. When I look into all your commandments, I will praise you with an uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, verse 8, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. So these passages speak about the heart not being divided. A home is not to be divided. You are not to be divided concerning what you understand about God and how you feel about the church. Some people have a boast of a great understanding of God, but they have a delineation on what they feel about the church. 
But the church is the Lord's bride, and to bring a charge against her is an offense to God. So it's important to understand that we do not have division over the function of the church. Karis was telling me that there's, you know, kind of a new version of the Bible that's being written for the LBGTQ community that takes out what they want to hear, justifying what it is they do. And it's just flat out wrong. Somebody was moved in compassion to have a connection spiritually with this group, and as a result, taking only certain chunks of the scripture, but not the commandments of the God who has said, this is the way that I want you to live, this is what I want you to be blessed in the undefiled way that you were to walk. So there are people even that have at least a voiced relationship with God, but they're choosing not to honor the full counsel of God's word because compassion for the lost or for the, if you would, different individuals by choice, compromise. It's not going to be what they need. It's what they want. They want their ears tickled. But it saddened me that that now is becoming vogue and those who should be singing praises to the Lord or on the other end committing themselves to a lifestyle of the LBGTQ community. And the bottom line is that would be like forming a specialized group of any one of us and our particular vices, our particular weaknesses and saying, we're gonna call ourselves this because we can't change or we don't want to change. So verse 1 through 8 says this to us. We are not to have a divided heart. But that also doesn't mean a heart that's so hard in your convictions that you cannot have compassion. But compassion comes with responsibility. Because if you lead someone astray out of compassion and you do not tell them the truth about the way that they are to go, you're responsible for that misleading Better to offend by the word of God with grace than to choose to be compassionate and do not speak truth. And that's just the way it needs to be. Verses 9 through 16 is considered in what it is voicing is the stored treasure. So there's a treasury of promises in the word of God. There's a treasury of counsel in the word of God. You know, if you have ever been in a season of drought or where you've turned on your spigot and you forgot they told you the day before that they were going to be working on the water line and you ask yourself, how did I miss that? If I had known or heard it, I would have filled up five-gallon jars. I would have had one-gallon jars by the toilet. I would have seen that we could at least get through three days. And now I'm collecting just one drop in my coffee cup and so the idea here is that this concept of the storehouse or the treasure is it's intended to do this very thing, to bring us to the point in which we are considering ourselves wealthy, truly wealthy. So how can a young man, it declares in verse 9, 
cleanse his way. And one of the reasons that this is important is because this creates the image of a cleansing shower. I heard the rains hit last night. And then I heard them hit again. And there was a catchphrase in my mind, showers of blessings. And it coincided with what somebody had once spoke very recently and this cascading of water that was falling. And it was just very comforting to me to have that as a kind of a visual on what I'd been going through. How can a young man cleanse his way? And it says, by taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart, I have sought you. Coming back to that theme, with my whole heart, I have sought you. When we look at the seeking out of a treasure, you know, most of us are intrigued with hunts. Why? Because the end of the hunt is usually the manifestation of a reward. We've done that with a variety of things. And God knows that we're compelled to actually go after something that is rewarding once we find ourselves looking for it intently. It is a reward to us. It's a treasure when we find either what was lost. Usually that's one of the real joys is when you've lost something and you've found it, your heart just wells up. But also, when you find something that you never anticipated, your heart equally just wells up. It's exciting, the hunt. This talks about, though, a man who is on the hunt for a cleansing to his life. And in this cleansing, the counsel is, then take heed according to God's word. Your word, I'm going to heed it. When you look at the particular listings of terms that we looked at, the law and the precepts, the commandments, the ordinances, these would be like in our practical life, like stop signs and yield signs and, and intersection ahead, detour. All of us pay attention to signs on our highway in life. Because if you don't, there will be somebody to tell you you've erred greatly. If you do, it doesn't mean there cannot be problems somewhere in that drive, but less likely that you'll have a problem. If a road says wilderness, do not enter, you're either an adventurer that knows you've got the track that both can enter and exit, or you're a fool. I'm not one that would take a sign that says wilderness, do not enter and laugh at it. I would say, thank you for that sign. I, I appreciate that. I'm not going to test it. I'm not going to challenge it. And if it says detour ahead, though it may inconvenience me, I'm going to say, okay. I don't know what that's saving me from. But if it's a road that's been sliced into that leads to a pit to a, basically a water main down below six feet or so, I'm a fool to try and run beyond that detour rather than take a trip around it. That's what it's telling me to do. That's essentially what the Word of God is. It's intended to be this storehouse of directives 
that are intended to save me. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Because our tendency is to wander, isn't it? Verse 11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, I like that word as well, that concept of seeking, that concept of treasuring that treasure, and it's hidden in your heart. And I like that because to me, what the Lord is saying is, the enemy wants to snatch the word from you. So this is the way you do it. You hide it in your heart and he has no access because that's where I live. It's locked like Fort Knox and there's no entry permitted by the enemy to steal the treasure of my word. So when we raise our kids or presently right now as we're nurturing ourselves in the word of God, we want to remember key passages. We want to take the promises that God has given to us and we want to pen the date and we want to pen it by phrase and we want to recall it with frequency hidden in our heart because as this psalmist is declaring right now that I might not sin against you because sin always has a repercussion there's always a consequence to it nobody likes a consequence why because we've already determined we're on the hunt we're seeking for the treasure we want to be either surprised by it or just amazed that we found what was lost but always within sight of what god had his eyes on we want to be protected from the enemy the lord says then put it in your heart because that treasury there hidden in your heart will be unlocked at precisely the right time when you need it and the enemy will not be able to enter and take it because that's my safe. That's my treasure, and I've given it to you. So I like the imagery in that, that we might not sin against God, sin against you. Remember, this is a very reflective journal. He's always talking on this personal level, this one-on-one, mano y mano. David is talking to God. So we have to understand that our conversations with God are not chucked out by the conversations that other people have with God. No one's conversation with God is bigger than yours. God handles all of them. And unlike us, where we have a challenge at times with retaining attention, God's ear is attentive, sharply attentive. It continues to say in verse 12, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. You know, God likes hearing that we appreciate who he is and what he's done. We always talk about God blessing us, but there is a reciprocation in which we bless the Lord. We tell him that we're happy concerning what he has done in our life, concerning what he's doing in our world. Even when events seem to contradict that or things in our life suggest that it's, we're never going to get out of this situation, I believe that God is blessed when we say, bless you, Lord. You've blessed me. I want to voice that to you. Blessed are you, O Lord God, throughout all creation, all humanity. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Verse 13, with my lips, I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimony. 
the things that he has heard concerning God from God's own voice, the things that he himself has taken responsibility upon his lips to share. And it does make you feel good when you share the word of God with someone. And sometimes it makes you feel uneasy, especially when their heart is divided and their countenance is down and they maybe have an indifference concerning you. It can be interesting. But when it's all said and done, that means voiced by you and done, you leave and the Holy Spirit says, nice work. You planted a seed. You did so lawfully and graciously. Good work. And now I'm going to continue to work on that life. I've rejoiced in the way of your testimonies, verse 14, as much in all riches. So the testimonies of God that the psalmist rejoices in is equated as riches as well. I will meditate on your precepts. The precepts, again, are important distinctively. And the psalmist says, I'm going to take great consideration of your precepts. Remember, we're in a time right now where a lot of things are battling for our attention and our time, right? We had kind of a funny, it, to me, Rivers phrased it real classically. I just, I got to know what's going on. And he's voiced several times how that tug is. And I've had the same kind of thing as well. We're in a time in my past fed up with that desire to always be in the know of what was going on in the world. They just cut, went outside and took hedge trimmers to the cable. I was tapped out. There was nothing more that I could be told regarding the condition of the world that was more important than the condition of my heart and what God was doing with me. And so meditating on the precepts, contemplating God's ways, I will, in verse 16, delight myself in your statutes, and I will not forget your word. And I believe that for those that do not forget God's word, I think less frequency of forgetfulness all around is the reward. I can't be certain of that, because I know, you know, my, I had a mother passing away at a, at a very ripe age, from ultimately Alzheimer's, I've got to say something's got to give out. And for her, you know, making it to 98, uh, that's what gave out. My brother on a different course. But I do wonder how much the facilitation of putting into our mind and into our heart the Word of God by contemplating, delighting ourselves in his statutes, not forgetting his word. Does he help us not forget other things? Why didn't I do that? What did I do that for? Gamel, these are terms that are emphatic. They identify the particular structure of the poem. Verse 17, this would be a time of solace or comfort and loneliness. And so loneliness is one of the things that God deals with in our lives. Songs, great songs have been written about loneliness. 
Loneliness is one of the things that God uses to draw men and women close to him. If we do not have a relationship that has been satisfied in drawing close to the Lord and him becoming everything to us, it's going to be very difficult for somebody not stealing our heart from God. So the time of loneliness God creates, that there might be a perfecting in our relationship with him. You know, for me, 34 up to age 38, as God was doing a perfecting work of understanding how to love him without being concerned by being loved by anyone. So I always say, you're never too old to be lonely. You're never too old to be lonely because God renews you in a youthful provision of both contentment and also an amazing ultimate work of, of satisfying that loneliness. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Again, moving into this theme, this would be verses 17 through 24, solace or comfort in times of loneliness that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. See, if your eyes are always on who's going to satisfy my loneliness, God directs us and says, if you ask me to open your eyes, I am going to let you see wondrous things from my law. And that's one of the things when there is that point of both contentment but high expectation, then your eyes see things that are amazing, enriching, comforting. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. Verse 20, my soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. I, again, find this to be fascinating because it can be described as the solace of loneliness, but he's speaking with great passion about wanting everything apart from simply satisfying his aloneness. He wants everything that God has purposed for him. That can, by the way, happen both early, both midlife, both in what we call the latter times of life. I've not seen a pattern that fits any one particular person. But I know this, if your time of aloneness and being in the solace of loneliness isn't directed fully to God, uh, you will be left really discomforted and without consolation. There are great things to be done, both in singleness, but also the high expectation that God's going to satisfy companionship but he wants to be the first companion of our lives. And the solace comes when we realize that he truly is the lover of our soul. And we are, as Revelation declares, his first love. He asks, hey, you've left your first love. The reciprocation of that is this. He loves us first. Therefore, we love him. 
He's not an insensitive God. He's highly sensitive. He's not infatuated. He's deeply in love with us. Big difference. Infatuation doesn't stand the test of tests, and it can't. It's very shallow. It's intriguing. It can be somewhat rewarding for a season, but it can't stand by you when hardships come. Love does. Never forsakes you. A stranger in the earth, do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt. This is solely leaning on God to handle the things that are hard in a time of aloneness or loneliness. I have kept your testimonies, verse 23. Princes also sit and they speak against me. This is the observation that can also be a part of being alone and loneliness. You get spoken against. You get condemned. You get demeaned. You get verbally assaulted. You have a back turned on you but your servant meditates on your statutes, and that's the answer. When that happens to you via media, phone, whatever it may be, it compels us to be as servants that once again meditate on the statutes of God. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. So in this season that we all have either been in or are invited to come into, it's always coming back for solace in the Lord, not in a place, not in a person. If it's the place and it's the person, it will be what Solomon qualified as vanity. It'll be gone just like that. But if it's in him, then wherever the place is and whomever the people may be, then God simply adds that to a greater understanding of temperaments, of attributes that are what, in fact, he desires to have you share with somebody. And the giftings become more clearly manifested to you. I know that it was the difficult times in which the giftings became more genuinely distributed in my life. And I just chose, I'm going to go through this difficulty. And therefore, the giftings then became distributed more lavishly, but it always took another step of faith. What I do seemingly effortlessly to come to this place to teach, I had feet that were very heavy when that was first imposed upon me. And when I was given instruction to go to places, I had to battle fear and the why me and what now and how long, but for everything that I stayed faithful to, the Lord enhanced in the distribution of giftings that enabled me to do more. And I still feel that that is inevitably true, but I'm also seeing it reflected in the lives of people that I've had the privilege of knowing for like 20 years. And he represents one of, somebody asked me, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young people that ventured to Mexico over the 11 years, not consecutively, that I served there, hundreds. 
I will never know necessarily how the Lord affected or touched them. I just know that as I was blessed by them, the Lord manifested that ultimately because the word became real and relevant to them there. Very likely, David has drawn upon this both in all of his outward experiences of being hunted and chased down, disrespected, even though in his heart he knew there was a great plan of God for him, he wasn't being treated like that at all. And he had to continually trust the Lord. He had to go back to the days early when he shepherded sheep, leading them and following them and rescuing them. He had to go back to the days in which he contemplated every star and constellation in the sky when songs that would come would be penned as poetry to God. And his consolation was found in the solace of the times of aloneness or loneliness. It's only a short-term misery, but it does have tags that come in somewhat unpredictable revisitations on you. And some of us know what that's like. Christy's been gone from this body for three months now. So there is an aloneness and a loneliness. At the same time, there's a provision of companionship through Zachary. Zachary, three months now. But there is a consolation, a solace of comfort in that he's not been left alone. And he discovers that through the people looking in on his life and through what you guys are doing, sharing that. It's a season in which we are to learn of the Lord extraordinarily. The solace, the comfort in our time of mandated spiritual aloneness and loneliness. There's fruit. There's the distribution of giftings that are highly magnanimous. The Lord's just pouring it out, pouring it out. And quite honestly, we aren't fully aware of how much of a deluge is actually falling on us and actually flowing from us. In this last area up to verse 32, I'll take it. This speaks of revival. Maybe that's where some of you are right now. I just need my soul revival. Okay, so if you've, if you've right now said, okay, I'm at that place where in loneliness and aloneness, I've sought the Lord, his solace, his comfort. Ah, then now what you can say, then may there be a revival in my life. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. It's very likely that in your time of solace, there's been a little bit of dust cleaving to your palate, thirst and hunger. This is being admitted here. But revive me according to your word. So you get into the word and you say, Lord, show me the word of revival right now and what I've come through, how I've matured. Show me the word of revival. I've declared my ways and you answered me. This is affirming that God is an answering God. I can sit on my answers and I don't necessarily always apologize for that because I know that the reason I'm sitting is that I don't give a fast answer that may be altogether a wrong answer. But God doesn't necessarily sit indecisively upon an answer, what he's doing is he's coordinating obedience, that moving from a time of solace and trusting confidence in the time of loneliness and alone, then your time of revival will be, you will just break forth. 
Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. So here we go again. Shall I meditate on your wonderful works? Oh, Lord. The leak stopped on that sink. Thank you. What a wondrous work that is. And you may laugh. It's no kidding. If you're a mom and you've got something like that that is outside of your pay grade, there is very little that's outside of a wife's pay grade, a mother. But let's say something that can't be gotten to and all of a sudden it's solved, the Lord. That's a wondrous work. Have you ever found a nail in your tire and you didn't know it, but that nail was big enough literally to strand you, to blow your tire out. And you're going, how did that? It's a wondrous work of God. I'm saying that because I just spotted a nail in, in one of my vehicles. It is such a plump, fat nail. I'm going, God, what a wondrous work. I discovered a wondrous work when I drove that same car into my driveway and this plume of billowing steam came ushering underneath the hood and I lifted it and I had that one area fixed and it became unfixed but it didn't strand me it didn't do its thing until I was safely at home so the tire didn't blow and the car didn't overheat it was a wondrous work Revive me. You've got to look for the methodology in which God is saying, see what it is I'm doing for you and acknowledge that it is my faithfulness towards you. I'm reviving you. When everybody else has kicked you down, when you have felt as though there's no one that hears you, I'm doing wondrous works for you, reviving you. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wondrous or wonderful works. My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your words. So revival is contingent also in asking God, I am weak. I need strength. He can take that. He'll strengthen those who are weak. And then he says, strengthen me according to your word, not according to my friendships, not according to pity and sympathy. According to your word, strengthen me. Remove from me the way of lying. David is saying right now, I can have tendencies to embellish. I don't want to do that. I hang around people that do that. We're in a culture that does that. It's becoming the norm. It should be abnormal. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me from your law graciously. Now this also could have the implication of remove from me those who are lying to me. Remove from me my tendency to lie. Remove from me those who are lying continually to me. So sometimes God will say, great, I'm going to join with you on that. <laughs> Therefore, I don't want you to listen to liars. So don't dwell with them. Don't tune them on. Tune them out. Leave them behind. It can be both the responsibility to protect me from lying and, Lord, protect me from those who do lie. And the Lord say, great. I'll coordinate that with you. If you choose to leave them, you'll be protected from their influence of lies. And if you choose to let that go, that particular embellishment, then you will be saving yourself, ultimately, from misleading others. The heaviness strengthen me according to your word. Remove from me the way of the lying and grant me your law graciously. Graciously, the Lord does it. 
He's gracious. I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. And that really is the key. One is that you're one that does not want to have a divided heart. And you are able to say, Lord, you're the one that can enlarge my heart. When I have a heart that's enlarged by God for the purposes of the Lord, then I know that I've addressed already that tendency I have of having a divided heart. And so those are both things that are dynamics of the heart. He wants to be able to put his law in it. He wants to be able to store his treasure in there, and he will protect it from the enemy, his promises that he's given to you, the directives that he's given to you. He's gracious, meaning you might forget, you didn't meditate. He's gracious. He's not going to punish you. He's going to prove himself in another attribute, faithfulness. That's why when we think about God, he's marvelous to us because he covers everything that we find ourselves deficient inefficient, continually compromising in, and he comes in and he proves himself mightily. And he will do this for ultimately his purpose of reviving the weary, the lonely, but the one who desperately wants God and no longer wants the world. Living in the world, being effective for God in the world, but not living according to its standards.